Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. The country prepares for the 150th anniversary of the RCMP, but with the latest controversies, it's a time to dismantle them. And we'll cover things in American politics, too, with Reggie Cicchini, Global's Man in Washington. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Today we found out that uh, special rapporteur David Johnston will release his initial assessment on whether or not federal liberals should hold a public inquiry into the alleged foreign interference in federal elections. Karen Rebo has some details for us. Pierre Poiliev has been demanding a public probe, though refused to meet with Johnston, describing him as Justin Trudeau's ski buddy and family friend and the role of special rapporteur as a fake job. Poiliev is deeply skeptical of Johnston, a former member of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation, which is under scrutiny for accepting a donation reportedly linked to the Chinese government. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh describes Johnston as nonpartisan and trustworthy, but nonetheless wants to see a public inquiry too. So where are we? What are we going to hear today and what's it going to lead to? Well, all of those things we're going to get into right now with our next guest. She is uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. What are we expecting at noon today from from uh, Mr. Johnson? Is, is this, is this well, let, let's get the, I guess, the, the $64 million question right now. Is he going to ask for an inquiry? Is he going to recommend an inquiry? I don't see how he couldn't. At this point, um, it would be, I think, putting the government in an even worse position because given all of the accusations around, you know, this guy's, as Polyev says, Johnston is Trudeau's ski buddy kind of thing, which is a whole other thing. Um, it, it would look as though Johnston was trying to help the government cover up something or avoid accountability on something. And all of the, I think all of the opposition parties at this point are, are calling for some kind of inquiry. But of course, the other side of it is that if you're talking about issues that have national security implications, you're not going to get a public airing of security intelligence. And so what you're going to get is some, you know, it depends on what kind of parameters he puts on it, but that's the types of things that maybe people want clarity on are actually not going to be publicized during a public inquiry. And so this could have diminishing returns. It could also be an issue for the government in the sense that if he does it, his final reporting day is in October. And so you've got like months of content that, um, you know, the conservatives uh, can use to say, what are the government, what's the government hiding about this and that? Every time someone goes before this inquiry and says, sorry, I can't tell you that because I'd be in violation of the law if I did, you know, a la Katie Telford's appearance before Prague, for example, the conservatives are going to say, look, they're hiding something. And so I think this thing could cut a few different ways. Let's look into that for just a second. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, he, he's got to recommend this. I mean, if he doesn't, there'll be an inquiry into him. Uh, that'll be the next one that they'll be shooting for. But So that's going to be a given. But my concern, uh, and you touched on it just a second ago, Laurie, is who sets the rules? Uh, who sets the guardrails? Who says what you know door you can open, what doors you can't open? Uh, it better not be the prime minister, because part of that investigation is probably going to include the prime minister's office, isn't it, and his staff? Yeah, I mean, I, it, from what I can understand, the the liberals have given David Johnston, you know, an, a blank slate and said, you figure it out and we'll do what you want. And so if he says public inquiry, that's what they're going to do. But it's it, it comes down to the details, of course, like everything else. Personally, as, as I have nothing but respect for David Johnston. Um, it's strange to me that, you know, we're all waiting on one person to decide whether we're going to do an inquiry into foreign interference or not. 
and what that inquiry will look like. And this is an unelected person who's not really accountable to anybody except the prime minister in the capacity and the role that he has now. So it's a little odd. But I think you're right, though. I mean, to do anything other than go forward with an inquiry would be really um, questionable and strange at this point. So the key is going to be what what parameters does he put on it? Does he say we are going to do an inquiry into the past two elections, the past five elections, which the liberals would want because they want to show that this was an issue before they took government and it affected Harper, too? Is he going to say he wants to look at all kinds of indicators of the health of democracy and talk about um you know, how well Canada is equipped to deal with these sorts of things. Is he going to want to focus on China or Russia or what? And so I think, you know, the other thing is that he's got to wrap this thing up and get his report in by October. And so you're not talking about, you know, a two-year, you know, royal commission or something. This is a very specific time frame to do something really hard. Well, and, and to that point, I mean, I think you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when when the Harper government ordered an inquiry into Brian Mulroney and the Airbus uh, stuff and Carl Heinz Schreiber, uh, coincidentally, it was David Johnson who who was overseeing that as well. What a coincidence that is. But but th- there's an argument to be made, and there was an argument being made at that time, Laurie, that, that, that the, the parameters that the Prime Minister Harper at that point had given were too restrictive. And there were a lot of questions that they wanted answered, a lot of uh, things that they wanted to look into that basically said, you can't touch that. Sorry. So it was, it was kind of a, a watered down report. I mean, there was some salacious stuff in there, but nowhere near uh, as detailed as, as a lot of people would want it. We, I would hope aren't going to go down that road again. Well, that's the thing, because I, if I can remember correctly at the time, in full disclosure, I was uh, I wrote a report for the Oliphant Commission at the time. But the idea then was that Johnson didn't want them to be getting into the Airbus issue. And I think the reason for that was because there had been, like, if you're getting to something where there's allegations of, of criminal activity or something had gone, you know, on the wrong side of the law, then you've got to get the RCMP in. So a public inquiry of a royal commission is not the right way to look at something like that. But you're right. It left people with a sense of, hang on, how are we going to investigate Mulroney and Schreiber without talking about Airbus? It's just going to leave big holes everywhere and we're not going to learn anything. And so it depends on what, um, you know, what he wants to do this time. The last time he, with the Oliphant, he had like two phases where the first one was a fact-finding mission about the relationship. And the second was a, was a kind of policy exercise where they had to look at the ethics rules in place at the time and talked about whether we needed any changes. You could imagine this a same type of thing here where it could be two phases. You know, you could look at in the first phase, the elections themselves and what do the threats look like and that sort of thing. And then you could do a second phase on the health of democracy and what are the policy implications of all this. Frankly, I don't think he has the time. I just don't see how the heck that can happen. It's May 23rd. How is he going to do that in like five months and write the report and get it all translated and hire people and do all that? Like, I don't know. I, he could be a magic person, but I don't know how this is all going to go so quickly. And I don't know what role he's going to play. Like, is he going to, he's the person who's filing the report. So that must mean if there's an inquiry, somebody else has to do it. So there's some checks and balances here. Or, I don't know. It'll be an interesting end of day, I think. Well, I, yeah. And again, you know, f- what list do you pull from to say, okay, who's going to be on the committee? Who's going to be heading the committee? I'm, yeah. I, I don't think you're going to find anybody who's going to please Mr. Polyev. So, so that, that's a box they're not going to be yeah. able to check. But again, you're going to go to the credibility. And, and, and you mentioned this before. I mean, <laughs> In in Ottawa, as it is in Washington, south of the border, I mean, there's a political climate there, and and to a certain extent, everybody kind of knows everybody, at least on a you know a, a superficial basis anyway. So to find somebody who's totally independent, who doesn't have an opinion on any of this stuff, is is virtually impossible, isn't it? 
Oh, yeah. And I mean, the other thing, too, is like what sort of um, skill set does a person need to do this sort of thing? Like, do you want their, do you want it to be a judge? Like someone like Justice Rouleau, for example, um, who did the inquiry into the Emergencies Act, was not um, a particularly well-known, like, house, household name kind of thing. But he, the, what he brought to it is he's a judge. He's used to hearing evidence. He's used to running processes like this that have witnesses and, you know, there's lawyers and you move things along. But this would be different because the parameters for what the Emergencies Act inquiries looks like are set by the legislation. He, Johnson is not bound by legislation here. He can, they basically told him he can do what he wants. And so what sort of person would Canadians be comfortable with leading an inquiry into foreign interference? Who would they trust it? Because if, if Canadians don't trust them, there's really no point in this. And so are we talking a judge? Are we talking um, a former politician? Are we talking a securities expert? Are we talking a democracy expert? Like, what, you know, how, does, how is he going to do this? And so I think he's really going to have to explain in detail what, if, he's, if he's doing this what parameters he's chosen, what the point of it is, what we can expect to get out of it, because it's going to be hard to manage expectations, I think, around this. All the while, um, yes, probably the conservatives are going to say this is a, you know, a weak exercise for whatever reason. Well, and, you know, if I can, again, draw the comparison between this and, for instance, the Mueller report into, into Russian interference in that, that election, uh, a great deal of disappointment when he finally released his report uh, because they went through a lot of black sharpies, I guess, because a lot of stuff was redacted and we never did get answers to a lot of the questions that were there. I mean, I can just imagine the reaction if we got a report very similar to that about this incident. Oh, yeah, exactly. And that's going to be the issue is that when it comes to the actual intel and when it comes to issues that would be a threat to national security, if we went out and talked about them, you're going to get all that. You're going to get redacted testimony. You're going to get a lot of the, sorry, I can't tell you that. I wish I could, but I can't. And I can't tell you when I knew that. And I can't tell you what the circumstances were. And the fact that somebody has leaked intelligence somewhere doesn't create a responsibility on the part of other people to then you know, violate the, the laws that bind them in order to correct intelligence that either ought not to have been leaked or could have, or was leaked and, and it's wrong. And so we might end up with more questions and answers on a lot of these things, which is why the managing the expectations is going to be really hard. Very quickly, there's another thing I wanted to touch on with you here. Obviously, the Johnson thing kind of jumped to the front of the, the pack here with the announcement that it's going to be uh, open up at noon today. But here's a, a fun fact I bet a lot of people were not aware of, or, or if they were, they forgot about it. Uh, as, as part of this confidence and supply agreement between the Liberals and the NDP, part of that uh, is actually a new structure for federal elections. I mean, the next time we have this, uh, apparently they've agreed to, that they're going to actually extend Election Day to, to possible two, maybe three days uh, to give more people an opportunity to vote. Uh, that, that's going to surprise an awful lot of people. But uh, the... Uh, the folks running the election, actually, Alexa Canada said that actually could backfire because uh, they say they can't get enough staff and, and maybe the polls are going to have to close a lot earlier as opposed to be more accessible to right. people that want to vote. That's, that's a weird circumstance. Yeah, um, it is a weird circumstance. I, I would assume that the point of it is to try to um, create as much accessibility as possible, right? So you're giving people more options in terms of the days and times you can vote in the hopes that more people vote. We did that in Nova Scotia once where we had, I think it was 2013, we had like what was called continuous polling, where you could vote like anywhere, um, you know, at any, at any um, you know, what, like at, at any district, any time, up until five days before the election. And the ballot would be sent uh, to the appropriate place and, and it would be counted in the appropriate place. It didn't raise turnout. 
Um, it, there might be all kinds of reasons why this could this time, but it doesn't necessarily, people's reasons for voting or not voting are, you know, subject to a lot of complex factors and sometimes accessibility doesn't do it. At the same time, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely in the camp that if we can make the vote more accessible to people, let's do it. But our other barrier is going to be removed. And, you know, even things like making sure that, um, you know, persons with physical disabilities, for example, are able to get, you know, clear and equitable access to polling stations. That doesn't necessarily get solved just by increasing the hours or increasing the days. You've got to look at the physical structure, too. And there have been reports that that's been an issue over time. And so a complex thing. But I think the, the, the heart is in the right place for this one. But I, as you say, even for the administrative reasons, for staffing reasons, that might not might not do well, yeah, it, it's, I can understand that. Uh, you know, having been in a few elections and myself back in the old days, I mean, it's hard, very, very hard to get people to actually want to run these things or manage oh, yeah. them or sit at a desk for five hours or six hours uh, for one day, let alone for possibly two or three days in situations like that. Uh, but I think your point's well taken. I, the, you know, I, I couldn't get to the polls in time is, is not near the top of the list for people that said I couldn't vote or didn't want to vote. Uh, you've got to get people engaged again, and I'm not so sure that this yeah. is really the best way to do it. They're going to try a variation of this in Alberta, aren't they, anyway, Larry, because of the fires? Uh, that I think people, yeah. you know, if, if you've been evacuated and you don't, you know, in, yeah. in some of these like Grand Prairie places like that, they say you can vote anywhere uh, and, and, you know, anytime just to vote, get, make sure you get the vote in. I don't know how successful that's going to be either. Exactly. I mean, we, and even in the last election in Newfoundland, it ended up being all mail-in ballot because of COVID. And so we are, we're seeing different ways that we have to respond. And in Alberta with the fires, it's just tragic. And like, how, how do you run an election when, when that's going on? But they're going to do it. And so we're seeing different ways of making the vote accessible. When are we going to start talking seriously about online voting and making that a, a possibility so that that could, that could increase engagement? But again, you know, we won't know until we try. Uh, does this mean he can check that box now that he's going to accomplish electoral reform? And I mean, it's it's a it's a tweak. It's not really a major overturning of the way we vote. Uh, but this might be the the thin edge of the wedge to say, okay, let's have further discussions on some of this stuff. I think, depending on what we see in the next election, if we see some version of a liberal NDP partnership again, I think that things should you know look for more. And, um, you know, put a whole lot of pressure on this government to say, look, you know, we've been good partners to you. We've, we've helped you get your stuff through. Now, what's in it for us? Let's see something, you know, something really meaningful on democratic reform. Um, and I, I don't think three, day, three extra voting days cuts it in any, any way, shape or form. But, um, you know, we'll see what happens. We'll see what the cost of NDP support is going to be going forward. Absolutely. Well, uh, get your popcorn, Larry, and get ready for noon, and we'll see what uh, the former GG has to say. Have a great week. We'll talk again in a few days, I hope. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University, uh, waiting, as we all are, of course, uh, for the announcement about uh, what's going to be happening with this uh, inquiry. And, and as she said, how can he not recommend a full inquiry? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police is about to mark its 150th anniversary, but not without wrestling with some pretty serious questions about its future direction. Here's David Fraser's report. The RCMP's mandate has been debated before in Canada, including during the 2022 blockades of border crossings and downtown Ottawa. The Mounties have also faced calls for change in recent years over harassment and bullying of members, public anger about police brutality, and racism. The RCMP was also critiqued for shortcomings in their response to the 2020 mass shootings in Nova Scotia. 
Now, some pundits are wondering whether the Mounties should withdraw from small communities across Canada to fully concentrate on major federal files, such as cybercrime, fraud, and human trafficking. Others say the answer isn't curtailing the scope of the RCMP's mission, but finding ways to do things better. David Fraser, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. So where are they going to go on this and just who's going to make that decision and how effective can it be? number of questions here. Our next guest can certainly help us to get some perspective on this. He is Christian Luprecht, who is a professor at both Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time on a busy Tuesday. Bill, good morning. Hello. Good to have you with us again. Uh, we've mentioned this before, but I mean, we, as we head into this anniversary uh, and, and, and looking exactly what the RCMP have been, what they are these days and the controversy that has surrounded them over the last little while, uh, how do you approach the, the, the concerns that a lot of people have about this uh, department right now? Is, is, is it something that needs to be tweaked? Is it something that needs to be blown up and start from square one? What, what's your perspective on this? Well, I think the silver lining in all this is that we've ignored policing, police management, police leadership, police governance too long in this country. Like so many other public services, we just kind of take it for granted and we kind of muddle through. Um, and the upside here is that it requires a broader civic democratic conversation because in a democracy, it's ultimately up to the people to decide uh, what kind of quality and quantity of policing they want to have. And in particular, when it comes to the RCMP, of course, um, you know, including my own study on this matter with the McDonald Laurie Institute in 2017, where I itemized decades of studies on the RCMP that keep on pointing out the same sort of challenges and the same sort of problems. And look, we have a federal and national police force, uh, the breadth of which in terms of tasks is unparalleled in the democratic world. And we have a funding model for policing in this country that, that, that is unique among federations. And so perhaps there's an opportunity here for us to ask ourselves some hard questions. And if we ultimately want change, sure, there's a lot the institutions themselves need to do, but ultimately politicians need to own this. They're the ones who provide the mandates. They're the ones who provide the direction. They're the ones who make the legislation and the laws. And the agencies can ultimately only do what they are tasked to do with. And we have to get away from this model of, uh, you know, every time we don't like something in the organization, we change out uh, the leader. That is to say, in the case of the RCMP, the commissioner, and we expect a different outcome. What's the definition of insanity, right? You do the same thing over and over again, you expect a different outcome. This is kind of a variation on a theme that I think we've become familiar with, though, isn't it, Christian? I mean, we didn't have the same discussion about Canada's military, didn't we, a couple of years ago when Minister Nan took over? And how many reports have been written about that, about, you know, about malfeasance, about, you know, bad behavior, about sexual misconduct, bullying and things of this nature? And, and essentially, not a whole lot got done. Uh, are we facing the same dilemma here now that where it's... I don't think it's that difficult to try to identify some of the challenges the RCMP are facing these days. Uh, I guess the question is, how do you deal with those? And I haven't heard anything from the justice minister uh, about this or the public safety minister about this that indicates that they've got a handle on this. Look, genuine reform is bound to be controversial. Uh, there's nothing more controversial in the provinces than opening uh, the police act because it brings out everybody with a view on what should be done and how it should be done. So uh, I think any government is reticent to have a broader conversation 
on this. I mean, this, of course, is a government that likes to have consultations on reviews about everything and anything. But if you notice, it's pretty quiet around the RCMP and what we should do about federal and national policing in this country. And that's, of course, a bit of a tragedy because ultimately it is the largest police force in the country and it needs to set the gold standard, whether it's in terms of institutional culture or whether it's in terms of the capacities that the force needs to bring to bear. And I think the reports that we see time and again is that there's a uh, perhaps a considerable delta to make up if we're trying to get to that gold standard. But the reports also, I think, repeatedly suggest that, yes, the RCMP needs reform, but that ultimately it's politicians that need to own uh, that reform. And I see politicians that don't really um, that don't really have a have an interest in having that conversation. And in much of the country, I mean, one easy way to explain this is if you look at the rural areas in this country, there are two services that members of uh, parliament deliver. Um, one is uh, the post office, which, of course, Jean Chrétien uh, uh, put the uh, put a freeze on uh, closing post offices in small towns in Canada um, for exactly that reason. And the other is the RCMP. And so members of parliament are extremely reticent to have conversations outside of Ontario and Quebec about uh, police reform because it risks cutting one of the two key services that those members can sell to their populations as delivering. With that in mind, though, and, and there's a mandate here, certainly, uh, but does there have to be a, a, a more intense discussion about exactly what role they play? And and your point's well taken, of course. I mean, the role they play in, in, in Alberta is much different than they, they might play, for instance, here in Ontario. I mean, we have a provincial police force here. The RCMP do work cooperative with them on issues like, you know, illegal guns and things of this nature. But they don't have the same presence that they do in other parts of the country. They are the local police in many jurisdictions like that. Are, are they trying to please everybody and, and end up pleasing nobody? Yeah, I think most Canadians don't realize that even though we have a federal police force, it spends 85% of its time, of its resources, and of its budget uh, doing provincial, municipal, territorial, and indigenous policing. And so uh, we need to ask ourselves, um, and, and these are contract obligations the force has, so it puts these obligations before its federal and its national policing mandates. And so then we're surprised that we're not getting things done when it comes to foreign interference on national security, on firearms, on some of these on 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 uh, on sensitive investigations, for instance, corruption, uh, war crimes—the sort of things that Canadians tend to be up in arms about, but aren't realizing that their force um, is not able to deliver the results that I think most Canadians would be hoping for from a federal police force. And so, um, you know, I think in in this country we've become very complacently happy with mediocre public services that are very expensive to deliver. Um, and, you know, I think the RCMP tries within the constraints that it has. I think there are many terrific individuals. And so we have to be very careful not to throw, um, to, to separate the institution from the many exceptional members that work in this institution. But look, one of the arguments for the RCMP when you talk to um, senior members of the RCMP is it provides surge capacity in the case of a national crisis. Look at what happened in February 2021, the Ottawa convoy um, it took us three weeks to generate about just under 900 Mounties in Ottawa in able to, for that surge capacity. There are 2,500 Mounties in Ontario and Quebec alone. Where was that surge capacity when we actually needed it? And I think 
whether we look at the Kent County report, uh, the um, Mass Casualty Commission, uh, we look at the Moncton Inquiry, we look at Mayor Thorpe. I think the RCMP is good at adapting operationally, but there are important strategic questions about uh, the type of policing, police governance, management, leadership in general in this country. Um, and uh, they become particularly challenging when it comes to the RCMP, in part, of course, because the RCMP polices many of the most difficult and most challenging uh, areas of the country um, with some of the fewest resources in many of those rural areas. Which is, I would guess anyway, Christian, one of the reasons why politicians might be a little reticent to dive into this file, uh, because, uh, you know, the, the people that elected those politicians are, are relying on the RCMP for their uh, for their law enforcement in a number of different other areas in some of these smaller communities. Uh, so, it, it, it's not as if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, we know it's broken like that, but these guys, uh, I don't think really wanted to go down that road because they're concerned that anything they do here is going to be changed. And that's not going to be usually well accepted in, in some of these communities that rely on RCMP. Yeah, I think that the broader, I think the broader nail that you're trying to hit on here is that ultimately in a rule of law democracy, law enforcement is absolutely integral because there will always be individuals, organizations, institutions outside countries that will break our laws and engage in illegal activity or criminal activity. And so we ultimately need someone to enforce the laws, uh, both to be able to have enforcement, but more broadly to have deterrence against bad behavior and behavior that is ultimately injurious either to other individuals or to communities or society as a whole. And so the challenge that we have here is on the one hand, um, a significant number of minority communities that have serious questions about um, the type of policing to which they are subject and that as a result, either they are delegitimizing our key law enforcement institution uh, or they don't feel that that institution is legitimate in uh, the type of policing that uh, that they receive. And more broadly, that Canadians look at this institution, I think, see it as, uh, as, as um, not as effective uh, and efficient as it can uh, and should be, and certainly don't see it as a gold standard. And I think, you know, it's a, we have a government that always talks about values and that talks about um, excellence and wanting to make a difference for minority communities. And yet, uh, when it comes to the conversation about the RCMP, all of a sudden it gets all, uh, it all gets very quiet. And so ultimately, this is about democracy. This is about the rule of law. And this is about um, a, a, arguably the one fundamental institution that is the pillar um, of a rule of law society. Add to that the politicization that we've seen, especially from the current federal government in terms of um, uh, tasking the RCMP with enforcing in cases where, um, uh, where you know, where in, in types of protest that the government sees uh, as politically not in its favor, but then sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, don't go too hard on protesters that are sort of ideologically aligned with us. Uh, I think we have a number of serious challenges to the rule of law in this country, and the RCMP is finding it uh, itself at uh, at the crux of those challenges, um, and in many ways in a situation that uh, uh, that ultimately requires political leadership um, uh, because the RCMP itself can't resolve it. 
Exactly. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, more to come on this, certainly, in, in the weeks ahead. Uh, but I wanted to get your, your read also about the news uh, from Ottawa today that uh, it looks like uh, former Governor General David Johnston is going to be releasing his recommendations uh, to the Prime Minister about uh, foreign meddling in Canadian politics. Uh, your thoughts on that? What do you expect to hear today, and, 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 and where is this going to take us? Well, I think we might all be a little disappointed because, of course, this is the interim report. There's yeah. a final report that is slated for the fall. Um, and so I think uh, this might be more a signal uh, that David Johnston is working hard on the file and has drawn some preliminary conclusions. Um, but my sense is that the appointment of a special rapporteur was always about kicking this can down the road so that the government would not have to take action rather than as a way for the government to take action. Um, you know, I think the government is trying to get through the next election under the current set of rules before having to make hard decisions, um, you know, not just perhaps for its own, the sake of its own political fortunes, but because any decision that it might make on this file is going to be both domestically controversial and is going to be controversial with, uh, with China. And I think the government, both this government and previous governments have feared some of the potential uh, retribution from China. And so... Um, we'll, we'll see. But I think if people think that there's going to be tough, hard words from David Johnston today, um, my hypothesis is that we will all be disappointed. My hope is that, of course, David Johnston is an extremely smart individual, Harvard-educated, the youngest dean of law of McGill, ran two of the premier universities in this country, um, McGill and uh, the University of Waterloo, subsequently a very distinguished governor general, that um, you know, I wouldn't put it past David Johnston to surprise us all. Uh, interesting though, how does he walk this line though? Because if the, if we're going to be looking into this, or if he's going to be looking into this, uh, we know that there are some national security things. So you know, some information I guess the public is never going to find out about. But there seem to be implications from the parliamentary committee, though, Christian, that the PMO is in some way involved in this. Whether it's you know they, that's where the information stopped, or that's where somebody made a determination that this stuff wasn't important. Uh, how can you have that investigation ordered by the prime minister if, in fact, some of his staff may be the ones that are going to be investigated? So I think what is amply clear is that under the Westminster parliamentary constitutional system. The principle of ministerial responsibility means that ultimately the minister is responsible for what happens or does not happen in her, his, or their department. And in this particular case, the Privy Council Office is, of course, the prime minister's department. And so ultimately, under our Westminster parliamentary system, the prime minister, as the responsible minister for this department, needs to own whatever is happening both within the Privy Council office as well as the coordination issues between the Privy Council office and the prime minister's office. And so this habit of somehow blaming civil servants for everything that sort of doesn't go the government's way, rightly or wrongly, um, is highly problematic in terms of the way accountability and transparency are intended to be set up uh, in our constitutional system. And I think part of the issue that we have here is that uh, this is now increasingly becoming an issue of confidence uh, for the government. Certainly the polling shows uh, that Canadians are increasingly concerned about what they're discovering. 
uh, and the government's response has been to try to avo avoid an open, honest and transparent conversation, just trying to task more committees, parliamentary, uh, as well as its own, uh, its, its own committees with the task of studying an issue. Um, and we can see the, the, the frustration, not just, I think, from the National Security and Intelligence Advisor, but also from, for instance, the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, uh, so uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how the government is going to try to thread this needle. But ultimately, democracy is the elected government of the day has uh, the prerogative to decide uh, whether to act and how to act. And so I think the government is ultimately intending to make this, I think, uh, uh, a matter of decision making for the next election, or it's hoping that it can sort of kick this can far enough down the road that all the noise will die down and it can get back to the agendas that it would rather talk about. Well, I guess we'll find out, at least get an inkling of that at noontime. Christian, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Bill. Have a lovely morning to you and the listeners. You too. Christian Luprecht from uh, Queen's University, of course. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of controversy south of the border in the political field these days. We're going to talk about uh, what's happening in Florida uh, and a couple of other things with uh, Trump and DeSantis. But uh, uh, the thing that seems to be capturing most attention, and I think understandably so, are the discussions about the debt ceiling, which is something that seems to happen almost every administration these days. There is still no agreement after U.S. President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met to negotiate raising the government's borrowing limit. Uh, McCarthy says Republicans want to tie the debt ceiling to spending cuts in next year's federal budget. I felt we had a productive uh, discussion. We don't have an agreement yet, but I, I did feel the discussion was productive in areas that we have differences of opinion. Uh, we're going to have the staffs continue to get back together and uh, work on base some of the things that we had talked about. Uh, I don't know if that gets us anywhere or gives us any more information than, than we already had. Our next guest can shed some light on that, though. He is Reggie Cicchini. Reggie is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, bring us up to speed on what's happening. Reggie, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us again today. Good, good morning. Let's talk a little bit about the, the discussions. Uh, President Biden actually left uh, the, the G7 meeting in Japan early because he had to get back and have this meeting with McCarthy. Uh, they, they're saying the right things, Reggie, you know, that we we think there's been some progress made. We're optimistic, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but are they any further ahead, really? Uh, likely not. I mean, first of all, it's remarkable that the president had to leave this uh, this summit early, including bailing on planned trips to Papua New Guinea and to Australia, uh, two key trips that the president and the leaders of those countries had been looking forward to. And that resulted in his own team, including the national security advisor, to kind of have to uh, you know, explain to the room, look, everything is okay. The U.S. is not falling apart, trying to give some reassurances. He comes home and we get a difference in uh, kind of conversation as to how the meetings are going. Kevin McCarthy, in the clip you played, uh, made it seem like talks are progressing, talks are continuing. And then, you know, about 57 minutes ago, the speaker arrived at the House uh, and told the press that was waiting for him that, quote unquote, he's not at all close to a debt ceiling deal with the White House and that negotiators will again meet shortly. So here we are eight days away. The White House is saying, look, we're trying. The Republicans are saying, look, we're not anywhere close because the White House isn't giving us what we need. And all the while, Americans, the stock market and the world is waiting to see what kind of calamity is going to take place if the U.S. ultimately defaults. 
I, I want to pick up on that in just a second, but let me circle back to your your, your comment here uh, about Biden having to, to leave early for the G7 meeting to come back and talk with McCarthy uh, about the importance of those trips. First of all, the fact that, that, that President Zelensky showed up at the G7 meeting and, uh, you know, that there's a lot could have been discussed there, but that's a missed opportunity. But those trips you talked about uh, in the southeast uh, part of, of the Pacific right now are very important, as, as you've been reporting, because the, the, the well, the Chinese muscle flexing that's going on there. Uh, and, and you know, they one by one, they're, they're, they're starting to use some of these small uh, countries and islands as drop-off points for their Navy, uh, for Air Force things, and for military maneuvers. And Biden's stated purpose in going there was basically to say, hey, we're your friend, not those guys. Uh, yes. And and that's, that's something that could come back and bite them in the future now that he wasn't mm-hmm. able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Look, this was uh, this was planned to be um, a, a celebration of Biden's arrival, particularly in Papua New Guinea. He's to be the first American president uh, in office to step foot on the island in an official capacity here. Uh, there had already been a planned holiday around Biden's arrival. This was all as a way to, as you mentioned, try to shore up uh, security and ensure that there is a presence to push back on an ever-increasingly aggressive uh, China and how it's starting to interact with uh, you know, the islands that are in and around the Pacific. And for Joe Biden not to go, I mean, this is a bit of a bruise on his presidency, particularly in the eyes uh, of residents uh, in the nation there. Uh, but this was also uh, kind of a bit of a moment for the U.S. to kind of have to say, look, uh, there's a big problem happening at home. And if we don't get a hand on this problem, there could be significant uh, you know, ramifications that extend far beyond the borders of the United States and ripple their way across both oceans into both Europe and Asia. So, you know, there was a lot of uh, wheeling and dealing and communication between behind the scenes members of the administration and officials in Papua New Guinea and in Australia. Uh, Ultimately, though, the president deciding this was what was best, despite the fact that there is such a concern right now with Beijing and how it's acting, the United States has an issue that it needs to deal with to ensure that China doesn't try to take advantage of the fact that the United States is teetering on this default. Yeah, it, it must have just been eating him up inside because he's made China one of the main focuses of the Ford administration, of course, uh, since day one. And uh, and this was an opportunity for him to actually, you know, put some some mustard on some of the things he's been saying about China. But it's, it's as you say, an opportunity lost. All right, let's, let's, let's get back to the debt ceiling. And, and every time we have one of these crises, and there's another one now, of course, because of this debt ceiling, uh, there's always the discussion, well, how come this happens in the states and not here? It's different ways that governments finance uh, what they have to do as governments. And the United States goes through this dance just about every time that there's a a, a president uh, and, the, and the majority in, in the House, of course, is as of the other political nature, uh, whether it's Republican or Democrat. But President Biden made a statement the other day, Reggie, that I wanted to get your perspective on. He says that you know, because McCarthy just mentioned in the clip we played at the beginning of our discussion here uh, that he wants this tied to, to the way the government's going to spend their money in the next year. And Biden said, you don't need to do that. The debt ceiling and the budgets are two separate things, but the Republicans don't see it that way, or at least they don't want the American people to see it that way, do they? No, they don't. Uh, Republicans, and, and I mean, just within the last hour or so, as Kevin McCarthy was talking, some of the lead negotiators from within the Republican Party uh, were outside uh, on Capitol Hill talking to reporters, again, saying there is not going to be a clean uh, uh, debt ceiling past year. They do want spending next year tied to uh, spending this year in order to ensure that the bills get paid uh, by saying, look, the United States needs to deal with its finances properly. But the White House is saying, look, you've had an opportunity 
here to put a budget forward. You can we can deal with spending. We can talk about what happens next year. We can talk about spending down the road, but we need to ensure that the bills are being paid for the budget that has already been tabled. We need to ensure that the United States doesn't default. But Republicans are really trying to, uh, you know, tie the two together. And that's facing the pushback from within the Democratic Party. There is not even uh, a unanimous kind of a, a unanimous way of looking at the budget from within the Republican Party. And so Kevin McCarthy is finding himself backed into a corner here that if the U.S. ultimately defaults, yes, the president is going to shoulder much of this blame, uh, but the burden is also going to be shared with the Republican leader, given the fact that he is the one who controls or his party controls the purse strings, and they allowed for the United States to get this close. And that is why there is such a concern here with both, uh, both sides still far apart. Also, Bill, there's a concern from within both parties that they don't want to see deals made. Progressive Democrats say, look, the president can't make a deal with Republicans. Republicans are saying, look, the speaker can't make a deal at all because this is what we want. And that is why there is such an impasse. And, and those people that are that are you know, drawing that line in the sand, and, and there's a lot of people that doesn't think that it's not really McCarthy. Uh, it's, it's the people who are telling McCarthy what to do, which is the same cadre, I guess, Reggie, of, of hardliners that, that basically made him go through 17 or 18 uh, ballots to get to the, the, the role of Speaker of the House right now. Uh, he's been characterized by, by many critics right now as simply a puppet for that extreme right wing of the, of the Republican Party. Yeah, and there's a real chance here that if uh, if a negotiation is made and and some kind of deal is cut that Republicans make with the White House, that that could put Kevin McCarthy's uh, position as Speaker on the line because there are such a number of these uh, you know hard right leaners within his party that could ultimately uh, put a motion to the floor to get Republicans to vote uh, and oust him from that position. So he does not have the support from within his party to cut a deal. He doesn't have the support from within his own party to even pass their own budget. Uh, and this is why Democrats and Biden allies on the Hill are really trying to look to some of the more moderate conservatives within the GOP, if some of them still exist, to say, look, Democrats can put a budget bill forward. If we can get a couple of you on our side, we can avoid default. We can pass a clean debt ceiling. We can uh, not have to worry about you know some kind of global financial crisis. It's unclear, though, if there's going to be a break within the Republican Party to join Democrats. This is a, you know, T minus eight days and counting. Uh, and nobody is really sure, you know, who is going to blink first. Uh, let's talk about the Republican Party. That's, you know, another speculative story over the weekend uh, that you guys were reporting on that uh, that uh, Ron DeSantis is going to make it official and, and uh, join the race now to be the Republican nominee. Uh, it's been quite a couple of weeks for him, though, hasn't it, Reggie? I mean, you know, the, the war against Disney, uh, which is probably a war that he can never win. Uh, some of the pieces of legislation, uh, anti-trans, anti a number of different things right now, uh, have really positioned him to the extreme right wing. I mean, he's seemingly trying to out-Trump Trump right now, but is it going to gain him any ground in that race? Well, I mean, look, he's got a lot of ground to try and uh, and cover if he wants to catch up to where Trump is, because there were some uh, numbers put out by Ipsos earlier this week, uh, and they sh still show something uh, like a 30-point difference between where Donald Trump is uh, and where Ron DeSantis is, uh, and some of those policies that he's putting forward, trying to differentiate himself while at the same time tie himself to Trumpism. Uh, you know, it may work within his state, but it may not work on a more national scale. And I think that is where we may see DeSantis really start to struggle 
if and when this announcement is finally made, you know, it's expected he's going to file his paperwork maybe in the next couple of days with a more uh, kind of formal launch next week in his hometown uh, in Dunedin. Uh, but again, with him trying to position himself as just a different version of Trump to try and remove Trump, does that open up a possible lane for someone else to kind of sneak in and say, well, look, we can go in a different way as the conservative party, whether it's Tim Scott, whether it is, you know, Nikki Haley or someone else. Uh Right now, Ron DeSantis is is still teetering on that, you know, is this going to work what I am doing? Because in the polls, at least to now, it's not working in his favor. But whether it's going to be Tim Scott or, or Nikki Haley or whomever else it might be, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, when, when people like DeSantis and certainly Trump take that party so far to the right, uh, that all of a sudden people like uh, like Senator Scott and, and former Governor Haley look like moderates, and and they're not really. Uh, a lot of the stuff that uh, that DeSantis is claiming credit for, and so is Trump, I guess, to a certain extent, uh, are, are policies that both of those two saw, also advocate. And and I guess the one that jumps to the front of that list is is the abortion issue right now. And that's something that's going to dog Republicans, no matter who their nominee eventually is. Of course it is. Uh, and as for someone like Tim Scott or Nikki Haley, both who hail from South Carolina, who in the last week just passed new abortion laws to restrict the procedure after six weeks, falling far out of line, not only with popular opinion within the state, but popular opinion across this country, obviously in the aftermath of the overturning uh, of Roe. Uh, you know, this is also going to be a difficult climb for these two. Now, you know, let's put the reality out there. Tim Scott and Nikki Haley are both polling in the low single digits right now. Now. Uh, so, you know, there's even more ground to catch up to DeSantis, let alone the ground that they need to catch up to Donald Trump. But the two of them, like Haley and, and Scott, they're trying to run a different campaign than what we're seeing with the kind of vitriol that's coming from DeSantis and uh, and Donald Trump here, uh, where they're trying to do this as a, you know, a victimhood or victory or, or grievance or greatness and trying to differentiate how two people are running to how the rest of the conservative party uh, is running. Uh, you know, and all the while, I mean, the infighting and the trying to figure out what this primary is going to look like, the White House is saying, look, this is uh, a reason to continue to vote for Democrats, particularly if Trump is ultimately going to be the one who is leading. Uh, they lost much of Congress in 2018. He lost the presidency in 2020. He His party failed to get the Senate back in 2022. So the growing question for Republicans is, how do we get rid of Donald Trump? How do we protect ourselves from what could potentially be a Trump light with Ron DeSantis? And Democrats say, how do we continue moving forward without, you know, something like the debt default dragging down what is already an unpopular president? So that, that's the, the stage set now is that what's going to happen in 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 that realm with the, the Biden or the, uh, the the Trump versus, uh, uh, well, DeSantis and whoever else wants to jump in here. But as you've been reporting, uh, the legal aspect of this keeps going on, too. It's maybe not grabbing the headlines because of some of the other stuff that's happening with DeSantis. Uh, but certainly uh, the, the revelation uh, that uh, it apparently documented now that, that Trump was told uh, as he was leaving the White House that he does not own any of these documents, these, these documents that he claimed were his, that they all declassified the whole bunch of them. Uh, apparently he was told beforehand, no, they leave everything here. Uh, and when, then he ignored that, of course, and, and subsequently, of course, decided to take them down to Mar-a-Lago and was told again that everything there had to come back. And he ignored that one as well. Uh, that's got to be a factor, I would think, in, in that judgment about that investigation that's going on about Mar-a-Lago, Reggie. Yeah, absolutely. And look, this could be something that actually gets in the way uh, of the president, at least when it comes to his ability to keep an eye on and a focus on the uh, campaign when he is staring down the real possibility here of something, uh, you know, 
more dangerous when it comes to uh, this investigation linked to these documents. And look, all of that stems from the special counsel now having dozens and dozens of conversations that were uh, kind of contemporaneously written down by Trump's lawyer, Evan Corcoran, uh, that makes a point of saying that he told the former president that you cannot have these uh, documents, that you cannot do anything now that the uh, that archives and the Department of Justice are looking for them back. And those com- the, the notes rather make comments that Donald Trump was looking to find a way to try and block or ignore or not pay attention to these federal subpoenas for uh, documents. And, you know, this is going to lead to more questions. Were people within Trump's orbit actively moving boxes around at the direction of Donald Trump or doing things to try to protect him? Ultimately here, uh, now that the special counsel has this information, continuing their investigation, this could be uh, the one serious legal threat that the former president is not able to overcome. It's not going to get in his way from running, but ultimately this is going to be the one that sucks the oxygen out of his ability to differentiate himself from the candidate and the person. And we've just talked about the Mar-a-Lago investigation. Of course, there's still the the Georgia investigation that's ongoing and, and a couple of other things. And uh, lest we forget uh, some of the, the Trump empire stuff that's still going on in the courts as well. So uh, very pivotal week uh, with what's happening in politics down there. We'll be watching for your reporting on it, of course, Reggie on Global National all week long. Thanks so much for this. Uh, stay well. And we'll talk again in a few days, I hope. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News uh, in uh, the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.